If you're hearing this, you must love horror, science fiction, and weird tales. You can help spread that love by signing up at patreon.com slash lordbloodraw. There you can help support the production of Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rack and Auditorium, a podcast featuring chilling old-time radio horror shows best listened to in the dark. Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rack and Theater, presenting the best, worst, and wildest horror and science fiction films ever made. And Captain Paxar's Star Cadet Hour, the kind of show kids in the 60s and 70s would run home from school to see, featuring classic science fiction heroes like Flash Gordon, Tom Corbett Space Cadet, Captain Z. Rowe, and many more. Plus, if you sign up, you'll have access to exclusive content available nowhere else, like Lord Bloodraw's B-Movie Reviews, radio episode commentaries, and more. Sign up today at patreon.com slash lordbloodraw for the love of horror. Ah, I'm so glad you're here. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Lord Bloodraw. I host horror and science fiction films on my TV series, Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rack and Theater, but here, in this cool, intimate darkness, I'll be presenting tales of horror and the uncanny solely for you, alone. In this auditorium within your mind, you will coalesce the settings and the players from the ether of your imagination. Your terror will be your own creation. This is the sorcery of sound, the subtle magic of old-time radio. Horror. Horror. at the door. You will not need them. This is Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rackin' Auditorium. To paraphrase one of my favorite movies, I can't help thinking somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than human beings. There has to be. According to this tale, those better beings aren't somewhere in the universe but here, on Earth. From Sleep No More comes the tale, Conqueror's Isle. This is Nelson Olmstead. Sleep No More. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. 
In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's tale of terror. Told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep No More. The story of terror can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening, well, Nelson Olmsted, tell us about this evening's story. The story tonight, Ben, is one of the strangest adventures you've ever heard. The tale of a Navy flyer marooned on a small Pacific island. It's called Conqueror's Isle by that master of suspense, Nelson Bond. Very well, then, let's listen while Nelson Olmsted tells us about Conqueror's Isle. As soon as Lieutenant Commander Gorham entered his room, Brady began to pour out his story. He spoke with tense, white-knuckled ferocity, his eyes intent on those of the older man. He said, you, You've got to believe me, sir. It sounds utterly impossible. I know it. It sounds... Well, it sounds crazy. That's why I'm here. But it's the truth, and you've got to believe it. You've got to, sir. Lieutenant Commander Gorham sat down and said quietly, At ease, Lieutenant. I'm here to consult with you as a physician, not order your cure as a superior officer. Now, suppose we ignore the braid while you tell me about it. Joe Brady smiled. It was his first smile in weeks, and his face could not quite accomplish it. His lips twisted jerkily, but his eyes remained blank windows into torment. And he said, Thank you, Doctor. Where would you like me to begin? Gorham shuffled the pages of the lieutenant's case history and said, Well, well, let's see. It says here that you are Lieutenant J.G. Joseph Travers Brady, Navy Flyer, and you were assigned to the USS Stinger, an aircraft carrier. Is that right? Yes, sir. Well, it's your story, Brady. You know what you want me to believe. The trouble began, I understand, in your last bombing mission. That's right, sir. Or rather, that's when my troubles began. Well, the thing's been going on for longer than that, much longer. And someone's got to do something, Doctor. Time is racing by with every, every passing day. They grow stronger. I, I've got to make people understand. Yes, yes, Lieutenant. But suppose you start at the beginning. Now, what about that unfortunate last flight? His calm, matter-of-fact tone had a soothing effect on the younger man. Brady's voice lost its high note of hysteria... And he settled back in his chair, covering his eyes for a few moments, as if to think about this terrible story he had to tell. Well, sir, we accomplished our mission and started home to the aircraft carrier, and we were cruising the South China Sea when, well, all of a sudden we discovered we were losing elevation like crazy. One of our winged tanks was spraying gas all over the South China Sea. We weren't worried, though. Navy watches out for its own, and we knew that an hour after we were forced to our life rafts, a rescue party would be out to pick us up. 
So we reported the bad news to the squadron leader and with no great dismay watched the rest of the flight dwindle to black dots as we lurched along, coaxing every last possible mile out of our ruptured duck. It'd be annoying, we thought, and a nuisance, but it wouldn't be dangerous. That's what we thought, being logical guys. But in the South Pacific area, you can toss logic and reason right out the window. About ten minutes after the rest of the flight had disappeared, a shrieking hundred-mile gale picked us up and whirled us like a button on a hen-cooked door. How long we rode that thing, I haven't the faintest idea. It grabbed us and spun us as if we weighed ounces instead of tons. We had no way of climbing above the storm, of course. We just had to sit there and take it. All three of us were nerve-shattered, bone-bruised, and dog-sick from the storm's beating, and not one but would have cheerfully given up a year's shore leave to be clear of this mess. And then suddenly, as suddenly as it had sprung from nowhere, the typhoon passed. One minute we were standing in our ears in a maelstrom of wind and rain, and the next, the skies were crystal clear, and a benevolent sun beamed down on a blue, tranquil sea, while under the shadow of our wingtips lay a pink and green sanctuary of a tropical island. We came in for a landing on the beach. I wish I could tell you what island and where it was but we'd been twisted and battered and bounced around so badly and for so long that none of us had any idea where we were. We might have been one mile or 50 or 500 from where the typhoon struck us. But wherever it is, we've got to find that island again. We've got to, because it's their island. Unless we find it and destroy them. Uh, well, I'm sorry, Doctor, but I, I feel so deeply about this thing. Well, anyway, we reached the island, which, as far as I can tell is uncharted. A few minutes after we'd landed, we heard a cheerful hail and looked up to find a white man approaching us from a wall of tropical foliage that spanned the beach. There were several of them, and they smiling and unarmed, and they welcomed us in English with courteous enthusiasm. They had seen us land, said the head of their party, who introduced himself as Dr. Grove and had hurried out to meet us in case anyone needed medical assistance. Well, I assured him that we were all right, and that we needed only food and rest and a means of communicating our whereabouts to our comrades, who by this time were undoubtedly fanned out over half the South Pacific searching for us. And then Dr. Grove said, Food and rest you shall have. As for the other, well, those things take time in this primitive country, but we shall see. We shall see. Well, we have a radio in our plane, I began. But Jack Cavanaugh, our radio man, shook his head at me and he said, No, we did have, Skipper. It just went out as we sighted the island. Must have got wanged about a bit in that storm. But you can fix it? I suppose so, if it's nothing serious. I'll tell you better after I've had a chance to look it over. Of course, nodded Grove. But in the meantime, I hope you'll accept our humble hospitality. We don't have the pleasure of entertaining you guests here very often. It'd be good to chat with all of you. If you will follow me, please. Well, there was nothing else to do, like sheep being led to the slaughter. Blindly, trusting, without a struggle, we followed him off the beach into a winding jungle path. It was Jack Cavanaugh who first intimated that there might be something wrong about this setup. Even he didn't really suspect anything. He was just puzzled. He wondered aloud as we pushed forward. Where from? I don't get it. You, you don't get what, I asked him. 
That Grove character. He said they saw us land. Only where from? Where the devil do they live? In the trees? I had a good look at this island just before we landed. A good long look. I didn't see the sign of anything that looked like a house. By heaven, you're right. I didn't either. I wonder if... But my question was answered before I voiced it. We stopped before a sort of concrete shelter under a sprawling banyan tree, so perfectly camouflaged that you could hardly see it from ten yards away, much less from the air. Dr. Grove smiled and said, Here we are, gentlemen. And he touched the button, and a shelter door slid open. If you will be good enough to enter. And I said, Enter what? That? Well, don't be alarmed. It's merely an elevator. This entrance is from the ground level. An elevator in this jungle? Well, what kind of monkey business is this, anyhow? Do you mean to tell me you live underground? My dear lieutenant, I'll be glad to explain everything later. It's all very simple, but first I must insist that you... Oh, so now you're insisting, huh? Suppose we prefer not to step into your mysterious little parlor, then what? Well, then I should be compelled most regretfully to enforce my request. Is that right? Well, guess again, pal. I took out my automatic and held it on him, saying, This is one detail you seem to have overlooked. I overlooked no details, Lieutenant. Would you be kind enough to fire your gun? Well, I stared at him, baffled. He, he wasn't stalling. You can feel things like that. He was amused, superior. And Jack said, Watch yourself, Skipper. It's a trick. He wants you to shoot. The sound will bring help. Wrong, my friend. I need no help. And he slipped a hand into his breast pocket. Very well. Since you won't accept my invitation. Well, shooting was risky, but I had no choice. Okay, I stepped. You asked for it. And I squeezed the trigger, but nothing happened. And I don't mean that the gun missed fire or that it jammed. I mean it just didn't go off, that's all. There wasn't a thing wrong with it mechanically. Later, I took it down piece by piece and examined it. It was perfect but it just wouldn't fire on that island. I soon found out about that. About that and a lot of other things. Dr. Grove just looked at all of us and shrugged his shoulders. He was very calm about it all, and he said, You see, now perhaps you will be kind enough to step into the shaft. Not on your life. I don't understand what's going on here, but whatever it is, I don't want any part of it. Now, come on, gang, let's get out of here. I'm sorry. You forced me to use harsh measures. Believe me, I do so reluctantly. From his breast pocket, he drew a slender tube about the size and shape of a fountain pen, and he pointed it at me. At us, I should say, because from it suddenly flowed a silver cone of radiance. I started to rush him, but I couldn't move as that curious silvery radiance engulfed me. It wasn't a gas. It was odorless and tasteless. It didn't burn or sting or cause pain in any way. It just sort of hummed. But it was as though I had charged into an ocean of lambent cobwebs to become enmeshed in a shroud of moonbeams. I could neither move nor speak, and everything was so confused that for a while, I didn't know what happened. It must have been just a short time later that I felt hands lifting, carrying me. They felt, well, how can I explain it? They, they felt far away. I could see, but only straight ahead of me. I couldn't move my eyes. 
And then I sensed, rather than felt, the motion of our swift descent. Dr. Grove leaned over me, thrusting himself into my line of vision, and he said, I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I sincerely regret having had to inconvenience you. But you see, firearms won't work on this island. No explosions of any kind are permitted, unless by special arrangement. We have means of hampering your primitive mechanical devices. That's why your gun didn't fire, and why your radio will not operate. I was filled with a thousand questions, but I couldn't ask them. Then the sensation of movement stopped. I heard the elevator door slide open, and our captors lifted us again, and I saw the metal ceilings of long, well-lighted corridors and heard voices proclaiming the presence of many more persons in these subterranean vaults. And then, our journey continued through a maze of clean, gleaming metal corridors until finally I was carried through a doorway and placed tenderly on a cot. A light covering was thrown over me. Its pleasant warmth made me realize how weary I was. I couldn't close my eyes, but the lights were dimmed slowly. And at last, in utter darkness... I forgot my troubles in sleep. I don't know whether the return of lights awakened me or whether some unseen control automatically brought back the illumination when I awoke. At any rate, I roused from my slumber to find the room bright again. Even more important was the fact that I could move. I leaped from my cot and sprang to the door on the other side of the room, but as I had expected, it was locked. So I gave it up for the time being, any idea of attempting to escape, and I set myself to studying my surroundings. For one thing, I was alone. Apparently, our captors had assigned each of us to a separate chamber. This one was Spartan in its simplicity. Four walls of a dull, gray, metallic substance I could not immediately identify. A cot, a chair, and a desk were the only furnishings. What amazed me most was that there were no lighting fixtures. I looked in vain for any source from which originated the pleasant, unflickering illumination that flooded the room. I found nothing. The flow of light was constant, and oddly enough, there were no shadows. I think that's when I started to get frightened. I don't mean flabby-lipped or knock-kneed scared, but cold and awed and numb, like, like, well, the way a trapped rabbit must feel. Suddenly, desperately, I needed the reassurance of my comrade's presence. I raised my voice and shouted. There was no reply. The impassive walls should have echoed the panic of my voice being metal. But like everything else in this strange place, it behaved unnaturally. It absorbed the sound, sopping it up as a sponge absorbs water. I shouted again and again. And then suddenly I heard the faintest sound behind me and I whirled. Dr. Grove was stepping through the wall. Now, you must understand me here. I said through the wall, not the door. The door was in front of me, but Dr. Grove stepped into my cell through the solid metal wall. I know you're going to say that such a thing is impossible. To us, it is. To them, nothing is impossible. Nothing. Well, as I was saying, Dr. Grove stepped through the wall. And strange as it may sound, in that moment, my panic ended. Oh, I still feared, yes, but I feared as a man fears a god or a demon. I looked on him with awe, knowing him to be as far above and beyond me in the life scale as I am superior to a dog or a beast of burden. So it was we talked, not as man to man, but as man to a lesser creature. And I was the lesser creature. He was the master. I was the serf. And he told me many things. 
Has it ever occurred to you, Doctor, that we humans are an egotistic race? Our Darwins and our Huxleys have told us that we are the product of a steady, progressive evolution, an evolution that started in primeval slime and has gradually developed to our present proud and self-proclaimed status as homo sapiens, intelligent man. But perhaps we're not so intelligent as that. There dwells upon Earth today a race representing the next step in man's progress, a people to whom our thoughts are as immature and elementary as the prattling of infants is to us. They begin where we leave off. The hard-won learning of our best brains is theirs intuitively. They sense what we must study. And what they must study, we can't even begin to grasp. They are the new lords of creation, not homo sapiens, homo superior. Now, how they came to be, that's one thing even they don't know. There's a force called mutation, which you, as a doctor, must understand better than I. By mutation, a white rose appears among the red, and, and the white rose beads true from that time on. The new men are mutants. They, or the first of them, were born of normal parents, but from the cradle they sensed that they were different. Having a telepathic instinct, they were able to discern their brothers in a crowd, or even over long distances, and they banded together. Long ago, how long, Dr. Grove didn't tell me, the new men decided they must isolate themselves from us. It was a logical decision. They had no more in common with us than we have with our pets, our dogs and cats. So they sought this secluded island in the Pacific, far from lesser man civilization, and they went underground to escape detection. And there they live and study and learn and wait with infinite patience for the day when they must emerge and take over the world which is theirs by inheritance, even as Homo sapiens took it over from his beetle-browed forebear, the ape-man. Oh, Dr. Grove explained it this way. He said, you see, we are few in number, but we increase with each passing year. Some are born here, and others come from four corners of the earth, and soon we will be many enough and strong enough to accept the responsibility of government of all the earth. You mean destroy man and claim the entire world for yourselves? Oh, well, how little you understand us, you humans. Do you destroy the animals of the field just because they're not your intellectual peers? Our obligation is to keep and protect you, to act as your friendly guardians in a world that will be strange to you and frightening. Yes, yes, frightening. I saw the dread and horror in your eyes when I walked in. You didn't understand how I passed through a wall that to you seemed solid. In not understanding, you feared. Yet, there is nothing supernatural or fearful about what I did, about what any of us can do at will. There is no such thing as a solid in a universe wherein all things, size and dimension and substance, are but relative. We know there is room and to spare for the molecules comprising our bodies to pass unhindered through the molecules comprising these walls. We simply make a necessary mental adjustment and walk where we will. It's an ability as basic, as fundamental to us as breathing is to a person like you. Well, then... What is your plan for man? Well, your question should be, what is nature's plan for man? And I believe the question answers itself. The answer lies in history. What became of nature's earlier experiments? The giant reptiles, the anthropoids, the men who dwelt in caves and trees. Well, they died out. Civilization passed them by. They fell before the onrush of higher life forms. Even so. Even so. But... Uh, you have our pledge that we will be kind. So you see, that, that was the essence of the matter. These new men are intelligent, a thousandfold more intelligent than we. And being that great step farther along the path to perfection, 
They are born with the instinct to gentleness. That's why their weapons anesthetize but don't harm. They will not, they cannot kill. Oh, I, I could go on for hours relating what I heard and saw during the three weeks I was prisoner in the subterranean refuge of this new man. I'll tell you only a few things because you, like the others, must think that I'm mad. But there are some things you should know. Those metal cells hold more than 200 humans like you and me, men and women who have stumbled by accident upon the hideaway island and have been restrained there lest they go back and tell the world of the conquest to come. Oh, oh, I could quote names that would amaze you. A famous author and traveler whose ship disappeared some years ago in the Pacific. Yes, a, a big game hunter supposedly killed. An aviatrix for whom a dozen fleets sought in vain. Yeah, they are there. I could tell you something else that would make the small hairs creep in the back of your neck, if you dared let yourself believe it. They are here among us already, the new men. As their hour of ascendancy approaches, they are paving the way for their bloodless conquest. Some of them have left the island and have taken their places in our world. You can see the master plan. A handful of them settle in key spots. Here a, a politician, there an industrial magnate. They're an author whose every word is gospel to his readers. Now, what chance has a race of underlings to combat them when they strike? And they will strike. And soon. And when they do, that will be our end as rulers of the earth. For they can't fail in anything they try. Now, we as a people are strong, but they, they are omnipotent. Now, that's why you've got to make yourself believe me, no matter how crazy this sounds. You've got to, Doctor. From the broader point of view, perhaps it... It's better they should inherit the earth, but I'm human. I don't want to fall before a higher culture, no matter how superior. I want to live. And if we want to live, they must die. Their island must be destroyed utterly and completely. An atomic bomb could do it. Now, well, after what I've told you, I, I know you're wondering how I escaped from their island without outside help. Well... I was able to escape because I took advantage of their one weakness. They cannot willfully cause any creature pain. Knowing this, I begged Grove to take me to the surface so I could get some things from the plane. Some personal things, I told him. Pictures of my loved ones that I'd hidden in a secret compartment. And he agreed. We'd been on friendly terms for some weeks, and he suspected no treachery. That is a human trait. They cannot conceive of guile or deceit. He was careless, and I was desperate. He turned to look when I cried out and pointed to something behind him. He never knew what hit him. I don't know whether my rock killed him or not. I hope not. Well, the plane, of course, was useless, but there were self-inflating life rafts, and the water was only yards away, and I paddled from that devil's shore with the strength of a madman. Now, you know the rest how my food and water ran out, how they found me raving in delirious days or maybe weeks later, sun-blistered and more than half dead. Dr. Gorham nodded, and quietly closed the memo book in which he had scratched only doodles. Brady sat in his chair, as if exhausted from the memory of his experience. Well, Lieutenant, said Dr. Gorham, it's been a pleasure listening to your story. 
Brady looked at Dr. Gorham for a moment and said, You... you don't believe me either, do you? Well, I'll make a report to my superiors. Please be patient and try not to worry. Good day, Lieutenant. Oh, go to the devil. Go to the devil! The doctor gazed compassionately at the young man for an instant, shrugged, and left the narrow chamber. Outside, another medical officer greeted him. Ha-ha <laughs> there, Gorham. Hey, you talked with him. Well, what's your verdict? Gorham touched his forehead. A clear case of persecution mania. An amazing form. So I've never heard a tale so complete and logical, but... Well, do what you can for him. I'm afraid he's going to be here for a long time. Perhaps for as long as he lives. Turned loose, he might be dangerous. Yes. Yes, it's tough. A nice boy, too. But it does nasty things to a man floating for weeks in a life raft. He was the only one of his crew to survive. Well, Doctor, will you have lunch with me? No, thank you. I've, I've got to run along. I have to turn in a report and a recommendation on this case. Of course. Well, I'll see you later, then. The other medical disappeared down the spotless corridor of the metal ward. Gorham pondered briefly, orienting himself... He was in the west wing of the hospital, facing the street. His car stood at the curb just outside. He was very busy. There was so much work to be done, so much. And if he walked through the anteroom, some fool was sure to delay him and drag him into a long-winded discussion. He didn't feel a bit like talking. He wanted to get out of this place and forward his report that the Brady case was closed, that there would be no more trouble from that source. He glanced swiftly up and down the corridor. There was no one in sight. His senses told him the street was also deserted. There was no danger of his being seen. So, so, Dr. Gorham turned and walked quietly through the wall. Turn up the lights now. You can look around you. Nobody is there, really. Everything is all right. Isn't it? Step over here, Nelson Olmstead, and tell us about next week's story. Well, next week, Ben, we have two stories. One is a classic tale of terror by W.F. Harvey called August Heat. The other is a fantasy by Nelson S. Bond with the strange title, Mr. Mergenthorker's Loblings. You have been listening to Sleep No More, an NBC Radio Network production directed by Kenneth McGregor. Mr. Armstead's albums are recorded exclusively for Vanguard Records. Until next week, when Nelson Olmstead will again be here in person, this is Ben Grauer bidding you good night.
beings with no physical limitations, vastly superior to human beings, but with a desire for peace and an instinct to do no harm. Would it be so bad if such beings took charge of our world, looked after and cared for the human race? Does absolute power corrupt? Absolutely. To explore the magic of old-time radio horror more deeply, take a peek behind the curtains of the Nerve Racken Auditorium by signing up at patreon.com slash lordbloodraw. Thank you for joining me in the Nerve Racken Auditorium, and I hope you'll come again. But now it's time for you to rejoin the, uh, real world. I am Lord Bloodraw, and I'll be waiting here for you in the shadows of your mind until the next time you seek the darkness. Good night. <laughs>